Whether in the media, our government, or our schools, Christianity faces tremendous intellectual persecution. This program stands on the intellectual front lines. With disarming honesty, we engage the most difficult issues facing Christians today. I want to welcome you to Theology Unplugged, the radio outreach of Credo House Ministries in Edmond, Oklahoma. We sit down over lattes at the Credo House coffee shop and just talk theology. I'm Michael Patton, president of Credo House Ministries. I'll be leading the discussion along with Tim Kimberly, director of ministries for Frontline Church Edmond, Sam Storms, lead pastor of Bridgeway Church, and finally J.J. Side, pastor of community and discipleship at Bridgeway Church. Welcome to Theology Unplugged, the broadcast that seeks to pull you in and get you engaged in a theological conversation in an unplugged manner. And the unplugged stuff is just us being honest. I'm sitting here with JJ and Sam and Tim, and they are are not only my colleagues, but my good friends. I'm sitting here also with Kelsey, who is recording for us back behind us. JJ brings the laughter. Uh, You bring the beard. I do bring the beard. I bring the, I don't know, the, the structure, the questions. I bring the questions, and Sam... What does Sam bring? He brings just everything that Sam storms. Sam, Sam brings storms? the gravitas. You, Michael, you bring the pugnacity. <laughs> Sam brings the gravit. What is gravitas? Exactly. That's why he has to bring it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks for joining us, and we we hope that you are going to benefit from uh, our continuation of the series on difficult passages. And what we are doing here today is we're going to talk about a, a very difficult passage. Not that the other ones are not very difficult or do not uh, deserve the, the uh, adjective very, but this one's just a weird one, mm-hmm. isn't it? I mean, it's just kind of bizarre. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like Jerry Springer type part of the Bible. <laughs> nice one. It, it's where like, yeah, where your kids are like, what are they talking about there? Uh-huh. And you're like, hey, let's read something else. Well, National Enquirer, I mean, we could just go on and on with yeah. just weird stuff. And, yeah. and, and JJ, uh, weird people do weird things with us, don't they? They do. I was raised in, in that was weird. That, that was that was not necessary. Weird people do weird things. No, with us. it's. I was raised in an era <laughs> when when Christians were writing books about this passage and wild speculation was taking place. I remember people were within evangelicalism were hoping that, um, hopefully, on the fringes of evangelicalism, were hoping that maybe this explained why there are so many UFO sightings or why there's such a fascination with alien races and that maybe Genesis 6 shows us that there's some biblical precedent for some of the things that people think they've seen when they've been wandering through the desert in the middle of the night and they've had one too many. But, J.J., I think I have a weird interpretation of this passage. I'm ready. I mean, if, if me. people are saying, you know, let's let's keep it on the level, let's keep it scientific, so let's keep it to where people aren't going to raise any eyebrows and it's really easy to preach, I'm not sure that the way that I would preach this passage— and I haven't told anybody what it is yet. I wonder mm-hmm. if anybody knows. I'm not sure the way that I'd preach this passage would be qualified as unweird. A lot of the passages in the Bible, though, I mean, it's a, there's a lot of weird stuff that goes on. Yeah, I, I think my opening line, if I were ever to preach this passage, is, folks, I don't have a clue. <laughs> Seriously, you know, I've got I've got a list of uh, of competing theories. But um, I don't know that I have any uh, dogmatic conviction about what this thing really means. So I'm looking forward to hearing yours, Michael. You seem to speak with such confidence. <laughs> oh, I don't have confidence, but it is weird. But, you know, it's. I think it's really refreshing and necessary for people to hear that. I still probably, uh, Michael and I both have the privilege of hearing Chuck Swindoll preach 
hundreds of times. And one of the times that I've probably the number one sermon that I, I've ever heard Chuck Swindoll preach, he spent forever preaching through the book of Job. And to the point that the day he said, this is my last sermon on Job, he got a standing ovation. <laughs> People were so excited for him to get out of that book. Uh, but I distinctly remember one chapter that he preached. He read the whole chapter at length and he said, I have no idea what this chapter means. Uh, then the whole sermon was him saying why he still loves the Bible, why he still believes the Bible to be 100% God's word, why he still uh, sits at the feet of the Bible. And he said, I don't know why it means what it means because I haven't studied it. He's like, I have studied everything that I can about this chapter, and I still don't know what God's communicating. And then he said, you know, that's refreshing, like, because God is, I think, like Deuteronomy 29, 29 here. Like, I think they're just things that God gives us just enough for us to see a snapshot that something crazy happened, but he, does, he only gives us like three sentences <laughs> and then says, there, have fun with those three sentences. Try and figure out what was going on. And I think in some ways it's a little test for us to figure out, like, are we going to now write all these books and try and come up with this big thing? Or are we just going to be content to say, you know what, my father knows all the details there. It's kind of fun to think about this, but I'm not really sure what's going on. All right. I'm, I, we've got to read the passage. Okay. Genesis, Genesis 6. six. <clears throat> when man began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not abide with man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. It goes on, of course, <laughs> and talks about God seeing the wickedness and that'll probably play a part here. But I mean, here's the questions is, who are these sons of God who are looking at the daughters of men? And what does it mean, number one, for them to take them as wives, and number two, to bear children, and then seemingly produce Nephilim? Maybe that's what it is, which are the men of renown. It, 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 at first glance, it not only seems bizarre, but it seems like we've got this not, not interracial, but interspecies um, uh, marriages and, and sex and children being produced. Well, and one of the reasons for our listeners that this passage is a little bit difficult or even this word is difficult for us is it's only used one other time in the entire Old Testament. You think about how large the Old Testament is and we only other have, have one other explicit use of this word. And, well, and oftentimes these are the kind of things that are very helpful uh, for us in understanding how a word is used by looking at the context. So when you get a word like this that's used once or twice very infrequently, it, you just tread a little more lightly. And what's the one word you're speaking of? Nephilim. The Nephilim. What about the uh, another place, another word that we're talking about is sons of God, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, because that's not, how, how often is that used? Well, it, it is used in Job. You mm -hmm. mentioned Job, Tim, uh, to refer to the angels. So the sons of God rejoiced in God's presence and uh, celebrated at the moment of creation. So sons of God is used in a couple of Old Testament texts to describe the angelic hosts. Um, some people believe that uh, the daughters of men were the, um, the godly 
descendants of um, of Seth, and uh, and the sons of God were the. Um, let's get this straight. Daughters of man. That would be the descendants of Seth, of Cain, and the sons of God would be the godly descendants of Seth, and so that this is just an intermarriage between the two. So that's a possibility. So we. So you've mentioned two possibilities mm-hmm. so far. Like one would be that. Fallen angels probably right. had sex with with human women. And then the other one is that the lines of Cain and Abel got together. Or Seth, or, or Seth, Seth and Cain. Yeah. <laughs> you, guys, you guys are being too that, unplugged here. That's a third option. Yeah. What's well, hard for me, even as I listen, I, I can literally, I, I hope I can say this. It's not, it's not my esteemed co-hosts here, but I'm a little bored. You know, I just, I don't care that much. You know, and, and what's funny, the reason I say that is not to be irreverent, but I remember a time when I was much younger that I cared deeply. I was fascinated by this passage. It intrigued me. It sort of titillated me, you know, and now I realize the older I get, there's so many things that are so much more interesting in Scripture, and I hardly ever give this passage a thought anymore. I, I think where it gets interesting is if people use it to try and explain, like like I've heard people use this passage to exp- explain the whole Roman and Greek God system. You know, like Hercules and all those people were the children of the of this these marriages or these encounters, you know, and that's why, and it's basically trying to source in the Bible all these other views of, of the other gods. But Let's be clear. Nowhere does the text say that the Nephilim were the progeny of this encounter or this union. It says simply the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, but it doesn't say the Nephilim were themselves the children of this union between the sons of God and the daughters of men. That's yeah. a that's an inference many people make that isn't found in the passage. I, I think the Nephilim, and if I can just use this, I think the Nephilim were simply a a tribe or a race of individuals that were basically a bunch of Shaquille O'Neal's, a bunch of seven foot, seven foot two, um, in, uh, mighty Goliath. men of renown, Goliath type individuals who were fully human and who were well known for their strength and for their ferocity in battle. But I don't think they were some sort of freakish offshoot of the human race or far less, as some people would say, aliens who somehow uh, were introduced into the life of mankind as a result of this union. Oh, I, Sam, I might now, Sam, that's not going to sell any books. Come on. <laughs> but, but I might agree with you. I might agree with you. But why bring it up? I mean, it's so out of context then. It's, it's here we've got the sons of men, the sons of God, seeing that the daughters of men were beautiful. Then suddenly the Nephilim were in the earth in those days. And... Then after that, when the sons of God and the daughters of men bore children to them, those were the men of old, the men of renown. I mean, it makes no sense to say the Nephilim were in the earth in those days unless it has something to do with the context either before or the one that's coming. Is it because it, it, we've got the judgment of God that comes right after this that says the Lord saw the wickedness of men. Were the Nephilim wicked? Is that the context? Uh, is that how we're supposed to interpret it? Or were the the product of the daughters of men and the sons of God the wicked ones? What is it that is bringing us up to this point? Because I think you would all agree that verse six is kind of the the culmination to where the Lord says it says the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of his th- heart was only evil continually. And he was sorry that he had made man, which is another difficult passage we'll have to deal with, uh, God being sorry he made man here. But 
it, it just seems so much in context to say the Nephilim are part of this, whatever it is that are going, what is going on. My only pushback there is you see it in Genesis 4, you see it after the flood as, as people begin to multiply again. The author tends to sort of take highlights of, oh, this is the guy that was the father of all those who play instruments. You know, this was a man who was very powerful and he had a city. So there, there, were, there are just sort of some um, aspects of the way this writer picks out highlights of human history. You've heard of that famous old man who had his own city. So, you know, it might be something as innocuous as that. Don't look at me, Michael, when you ask that question, because I already said I don't have a clue. <laughs> I, I'm waiting to hear your weird interpretation. Well, you know, who uh, are the sons of God? <laughs> who are the daughters of men? Tell us. <laughs> well, it, it's not a weird interpretation in the sense of something that is uh, foreign to church history or interpreters even today. But many people do take this not to be the daughters of Seth or, or a natural product that is natural men of some sort, but actually angels who are in heaven, the, the sons of God. And the reason why I'd say that is because Job uses this term for the sons of God whenever it uh, talks about the angels in chapter one of Job. That is the only other time we have the sons of God mentioned. Um, and the sons of God are angels in that passage. And so you have angels looking down and seeing that that daughters of men were beautiful and coming and marrying them and producing children through them. And these children are a part of the, the fall of the earth at this time. These children are part of the wickedness, the part of, of the reason for the flood, that, that everything became so corrupted because of this that God had to destroy the earth. I know that's as bizarre as it can okay. sound. No, okay. no. So in your view, do those angels fall out of heaven or do they just like get slapped in the wrist? I, I, and wait, 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 wait. I'm not necessarily saying this is my view. I'm no, saying you're this saying this is, this is your view. <laughs> I'm saying this is a view out there and it is one that I lean toward. That's the best I could say. Well, late breaking news, ladies okay. and gentlemen. Michael Patton has gone on the record. <laughs> okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on this because it's very similar to my view. Okay. I think you're right. I think the sons of God are angelic beings but I think they're fallen angelic beings. I think these are among those who joined with Satan in his rebellion. What if this was their fall? Uh, I think it is. And I think that what happened is that they stepped across the established boundaries of God's creative design, where the angels are a category of being, human beings are another, and they violated the boundaries, as it were, that God had established. And as part of their depravity, as a result of their rebellion and fall, they lusted after females on earth. They, they did long to engage in some sort of illicit uh, sexual intimacy with them. And in order to do that, they entered into the bodies and possessed and demonized human men. So I think the uh, sons of God are demonized humans. Well, why would you why would you say they're demonized humans? Why not just because, angels themselves? Yeah, great question. The reason I would say it is because angels don't have bodies. Angels do not have DNA. Angels do not have reproductive powers. So unless you're going to affirm that angels become incarnate in the way that Jesus, the Son of God, did, you have to have some mechanism by which they are able to engage well, in how do you, sexual how do you intercourse. Know they can't become incarnate. How do you know they can't take on flesh? Well, to say that they can is obviously utterly and absolutely speculative outside the boundaries of biblical revelation because nothing in the Bible tells us that they right can. Right here. 
<laughs> right here. Uh-huh. <laughs> nice hermeneutic there, yeah. Michael. <laughs> so, so here's the question too then. Would that be possible today then? Um, I don't think so. And for this reason, everything in Scripture seems to indicate that the um, angelic and demonic hosts are set and confirmed in their status. In other words, all the angels who are going to fall and rebel have fallen and have rebelled. And, you know, Paul talks about the elect angels. They, I think they are confirmed in their election and holiness. So I don't think there's any possibility for subsequent um, rebellion in that regard. Uh, we, let, let me make an argument that somebody would say about that. Not me. Somebody would say <laughs> you, you have a friend. <laughs> that it could still happen. Yeah, I got a friend who has a friend who says it still could happen. But the, the, it says the Nephilim were in the earth in those days and also afterwards. That's where people would say, well, it, it continued even after the flood. Well, let me say in response to Tim's question, there are those who do believe that demons can enter in and take control of human beings, and um, and engage in illicit sexual relations with women. There's also the argument that you have heard of, this gets us way out there, so I don't know, we're going to start hearing some whirly sounds here, <laughs> um, what's called the incubus and the succubus, which are supposedly demons that take on the form of either male or female in order to engage in illicit sexual contact with human beings. Now, whether or not that is real or true or possible, I have no opinion, so I don't want emails. And don't look at me like that, Michael. I know you're, you're saying, well, I'm going to send you an email. What in the world did you just say? No, my, my, mine's the same view. So, but, but I think all things given, um, and by the way, I would base my view a little bit on what we read in the New Testament. I think there are two passages in the New Testament that actually talk about this very incident. So maybe we ought to just pause and look at them. The first one is in 1 Peter 3. Um, there we read, beginning in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, and being made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, I'm not going to get into all the theories on this. This is another difficult text that we need to take up later. But I think spirits in prison is a reference to these fallen angelic beings, these demons who were consigned by God to some sort of incarceration, some sort of prison, as punishment for this very sin that we're reading about in Genesis 6. And notice he says, he links it. He says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So he, he gives us a historical framework within which this sin occurred. So I think that this is very likely what um, Genesis is talking about. Um, there's also, of course, another passage in the book of Jude when it talks about angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. Notice that, that notion of transgressing or crossing a boundary within God's creative order. They left their proper dwelling, and he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. There is a notion, again, of angels being incarcerated or imprisoned until the final day of judgment. So it may well be that 1 Peter 3 and Jude are alluding to the incident in Genesis 6 and that it does involve angelic beings, fallen demonic spirits, taking up residence in humans for the purpose of somehow engaging in a sexual act that God had clearly forbidden. Well, and Sam is in verse 7 there of Jude telling because he says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in secular immorality and pursued unnatural desire, 
serve as an example by undergoing desire. punishment and eternal fire. So is that, do you feel like he's that even further well, links I, the two? Well, I, I think it's a comparison. It's saying just as um, the incident of Sodom and Gomorrah involved going after what he calls strange flesh, and I think he's referring here to homosexuality. Uh. So the angels likewise in their own way went after something that was strange, that was out of God's proper design and order when they longed to engage in this kind of illicit intimacy with, with human women. This all sounds so weird, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it just, does. It sounds does. weird. Well, and I think especially for Americans to hear because we have so tuned out any supernatural realm. And we just, uh, unfortunately, even Christians don't like to think about demons. And, and it's not like I enjoy thinking about demons, but I realize, like, it's reality. And I think, as we talked about the last time, too, is how these problem passages can drive us to hopefully even a deeper love in Jesus and, and deeper hope in our Savior is that— I, I know right now there are people out there that are that are freaked out that they're going to be demon possessed. You know, maybe not in the way that Genesis six talks about, but they're just nervous about being possessed by a demon or like, oh my gosh, I don't want to think about this. I don't want to think about demons. And what what is so refreshing to me is that that is just a spotlight when we read in scripture that demons tremble when they think about Jesus. And that demons have anxiety, demons have fear when they think about Jesus. And, and we see that in them saying, oh, don't destroy us now. Don't destroy us now. You know, please let us just go into the pigs. And so, you know, hopefully passages like this even show that our Savior Jesus is more powerful than maybe we thought he was before we came to these passages. Well, and, and talking about this and saying... I mean, just bringing up the whole concept of demons, I think it's it, it just brings up a lot of questions. And I know you've already brought up these questions as well. But, you know, I, I'm thinking, trying to think as, as, as hearing this for the first time and, and trying to figure out what is this nature of demons and what is, what is it at this point is their purpose? I mean, it seems to corrupt humanity. It seems, well, I, I mean, I guess maybe their purpose was to fulfill lust. Uh, they couldn't help it. Uh, but um, the corruption of humanity that comes after this and then the ensuing judgment, is this, pro, is this what is going on? Is this the reason why God looked at the earth and he was grieved in his heart and he was sorry he made man whom I have created from the face of the earth, from the animals to the creeping things? I am sorry that I've made them. And then he destroys the earth. I'm glad that you bring that up, Michael, because we live in a psychologized culture and the church is as psychologized as, as the world. And verse 5 is such a earthy anchor mm-hmm. point after such f- flights of, of um, speculation and, and wrestling. When it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so scripture again and again brings us back to the reality that the most important thing about moral evil is what resides inside us, what we think and what we want, what we believe and what we desire. And that's ultimately the battleground uh, that God is most interested in redeeming and rescuing. And, and Tim, you brought up the, the uh, modernism that we live in and 
the difficulty, the reason why this passage is difficult, primarily because we live in a scientific world. And and maybe we can preach, when we get to preaching and you get to demons and you get to Satan, that's probably the place where a lot of pastors become red-faced about Christianity. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's something that I don't really want to talk about because it, I like to be rational. I like to make a rational case for Christianity. I, I don't want to like be, I want to be respected. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, Michael, I got to interrupt. Have we heard your view? Uh, I, I this is my view that okay. it was demons. I don't think they possessed men. I think that there was some way in which they were able to have an incarnation. So you think God, in a sense, uh, in light of their rebellion, made a concession of some sort and allowed them to uh, assume some sort of physical form. Now, by the way, just as a way of kind of real quickly here supporting your the possibility of your view, um, we do know that angels can appear as humans mm-hmm. all through Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, the angel of the Lord, we know that perhaps those who accompanied the Lord at Sodom and Gomorrah and ate uh, and drank. Um, so we do know that angels can at least appear as humans, but can they actually in some way take on human flesh to do what this passage describes. And you're saying the answer to that is yes. I'm saying the answer is that I lean that way. You it's lean not that a, way. It's not a very strong okay. lowercase yes. And, uh, you know, He's red very face small. now. <laughs> uh, it, it is a red face thing, but it is, it is one of those things which I look at the scriptures and I, I do not discount things because things seem bizarre. And I think that's so important for us. And that's one of the things that at least we get out of this because, J.J., you were like, I don't care. And I understand what you're saying about that. But at the same time, here's what I do care about. I care about Christians being able to bypass the modernism of the day, to be able to look at the scriptures in a supernatural way, and to truly see that these bizarre things are nothing bizarre in the real world. You see, we live in a fake world when we get into modernism. We live in a false world when we don't see demons and and, and crazy things that are going on. And this passage makes me, while I'm not positive, and, and I'm with you, Sam, I really don't know, but I lean in one direction. And while I'm not positive about this, I am positive of this, that it can reveal my heart. It can reveal my heart to say, I do not accept this because it's too bizarre. And that's a bad heart to have. We hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast and invite you to join the group again next week for another edition of Theology Unplugged. Theology Unplugged is a listener-supported ministry of the Credo House. They're a theological hub and coffee shop, and their address is 109 Northwest 142nd Street in Edmond, Oklahoma, 73013. They're open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., and Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. You're invited to come and visit the Credo House and maybe grab one of their signature drinks like a Luther latte or a Nicene mocha and discuss today's program or whatever else is on your mind. For more information, visit credohouse.org.